Good morning. I'm Angel. I'll be sharing the scriptures from Romans chapter 5, verse 1 through 11 today. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. And we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We can rejoice, too, when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us, because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. When we are utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed us his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's convention, condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. This is the word of God to you today. You may be seated. Thanks, Angel. Good morning, friends. Awesome to be with you today. Um, we are going to continue in our series in Romans, but we're getting to the good part. We're getting to the part where we, you know, we talked about sin uh, and brokenness. Then we talked about good news. And now we're talking about how does that good news actually apply in our lives. So we're getting to the part uh, where the gospel really begins to make a difference in our lives. And uh, I want to start with telling you a little bit of a story that's coming from a, a slightly oblique angle, um, not what you would think of when you think of, of Romans, but the way my brain works. And when I was studying for this message, um, this is the story that, that came to mind. And it's a story about my relationship with the novel and the movie, The Notebook. How many people have, have seen the movie, The Notebook? You're like, no, definitely not. Some guys are like, I'm not admitting it here, but you know you did. You watched it. Uh, how many people read the book? Less? Yeah, there's three of us out there, Nicholas Sparks fans. Um, so when I was uh, in the war in Iraq, I was on a little combat outpost, and uh, contrary to popular opinion, most of war is just boredom. You're just bored a lot, and so people would send us all these novels and books, and after a while, we made a, a little library, and so I would just go through novel after novel, and so one night, I, you know, was ready for a new book, and I went down, and I, I grabbed, grabbed a book, and it, and it had a sailboat on the cover, and I thought, I like sailing, I like the ocean, uh, I'm gonna, this is probably an interesting book about sailing, um, and so I, I picked it up, and uh, the deal was, is I was in a bunk room with like 30 other guys, 
and I was on a bottom bunk, and uh, the, the only way you had privacy was you would hang a, a poncho liner, which is the Army's word for a blanket, because they can't have a normal word, just call it a blanket, it has to be a poncho liner. And um, so I would like hang that off of the side, and you had your little like bat cave, and that was like your only privacy you had for a year. And I would get in there at night after my shift was over, and I, I was reading the notebook, and I got about 10 pages into this thing, and I, and I quickly realized, uh-oh, this thing's a romance novel. <laughs> the problem was it was a really good romance novel. It was a really good story. And I was drawn in, and so I, I kept reading it, but I was like hiding it under my pillow and, and, and reading this book. Um, but it's, it's a beautiful story. It's a good story. And, and the reason it's a good story is because it's, it, you know, it's, it's a love story, but it's basically a story, if you haven't read the book or, or seen the movie, of, of this young couple that falls in love and the guy, Noah, he's, you know, he comes from a poor background. He's like a carpenter, and Allie is a, is a rich girl, um, and they, they meet and, and fall in love. And what happens is, is that their love story becomes the centerpiece of Noah's entire life. Like, that's basically the story, is, is that, you know, their love, like, kind of makes sense of his broken past, and, and their love is, like, the greatest experience that he has in his life and actually, like, propels him towards this hope of them, like, reuniting. Um, and he actually spends most of the movie building this house for her as kind of, like, the, the culminating point of, of the story. And, you know, like all good stories, it captures our attention because what it's doing is it's telling this bigger story that makes sense of our smaller stories. And we deeply resonate with that because the truth is, is we're all looking for a bigger story to make sense of our smaller stories. And maybe for some of you, you know, the, that bigger story is not a, a romance story. Maybe it's a story of vocation, a, a story of work, a story of career, uh, maybe for some of you, it's a story of family. Maybe for some of you, it's a story of ethnicity. You know, that we have stories of our people and the people that we come from and our ancestors. And it's a bigger story that we use to make sense of our lives and our smaller stories. Maybe for some of you, it's a story of our country. You know, and it's, it's a national story. It's our history and, and the way that informs our present and the way that informs the hope of a future. But the reality is that we all need a story that does three things, that makes sense of our past, that steadies us in our present, and orients us toward our future. But the question is not whether you have a bigger story or not. We all are grabbing onto bigger stories. But the question is, what is the bigger story, the meta-narrative that you use to make sense of your life? And so, of course, we're going to be talking about the ultimate big story. And this is the story that Paul is communicating to this early church in, in Rome. And it's, it's really important, again, that we understand the context of the people that he's writing to. This is uh, one of the early house churches, a group of house churches. And remember, there's two primary groups that he's writing to that are all together in this little church. And one group is a group of, of Jews. And so they're Jewish Christians. And so you think about it, they had a story, didn't they? They had a story that, that informed their lives, that informed who they were and how they saw the world, and it was the story of the Jewish people. And last week, we looked at uh, the ways in which uh, they understood the story of people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David, 
that there's this story of their ancestry and the way that God had shown up through the ages. And, and that was their meta narrative as Jewish people. But Paul writes to them, and, and what he does is he, he retells the story and he says, you know, the story that you have, it's not the ultimate biggest story because there's a bigger story of Jesus that actually makes sense and actually interprets that Jewish story in a way that is helpful to you because it's true and good. And then remember, there's this other group of people in the church. They were the, the Romans from the Roman culture. They came from a pagan background and, and then met Jesus. But their background, their story is the story of being part of an empire. That their story is that they're citizens of the most powerful military and social and economic force in the world. And so there was this great temptation to find all of your identity in, in being a Roman citizen. And I think we can deeply identify with that, can't we? As, as being Americans, as being seated in the place where our culture is the most powerful in the world, that we have the most economic influence and military influence. And we just sort of take that for granted, but there's that bigger story around us. And so it was for the Roman Christians. And so Paul is writing to these two groups who are now trying to figure out how to live this cruciform life this, life, this life with Jesus together. And what he's saying is, Jewish Christians, your story is too small. It's not complete without Jesus. And he says, Roman pagan Christians, your story is too small. It's not complete without Jesus. And instead, he's reminding them there's one true story of the world that makes sense of both of these stories and the individual lives that are part of the church. And so as we begin, I just want to remind us of the one true story of the world. This is what we call the good news. And as Christians, we ought to be able to unpack this in an elevator speech wherever we are. That if somebody asks us to give an account, like, what is the good news? What does it mean to be a Christian? I want to challenge you that it's a story. It's a story. And everybody resonates with the story because that that's what makes every good movie, every good book, every good play, every really good song lyric. It's a story, and we're drawn in as humans by story. And so one of the greatest ways that we can share our faith is to be able to share the one true story of the world. And it's a beautiful story, and it's a simple story. And it goes something like this, that there was a God who was the creator king who made everything and called it good. And then he made people to be image bearers, to reflect his glory in the world. But sin entered the world that the truth is that we were all rebels and that we rejected God and his law and we were condemned to death and we were exiled from God's presence. And then that initiated God's greatest rescue mission of all time. And he promised through people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David, through the Israelites, he promised to restore us to right relationship with himself. And we looked at last week this idea that all along the way, he promised that he would do it knowing full well that we wouldn't hold up our end of the bargain and that in so doing that he would make all things in the creation new again and that God worked out this promise by choosing a people and that God remained faithful to his people and his promise by sending the one true Israelite, the only one true human of the world, his one and only son, our Lord Jesus, to live the perfect life that we could not live, to die the death that we deserved, to overcome that death at resurrection, that whoever would trust in him in two things, that he is who he says that he is because he claimed to be God Almighty and that he did what he said that he did, 
which is he went to the cross, that he died in our place, that he was resurrected on the third day, and that he's seated with the Lord today. And whoever would trust in him would not die and be cut off from God forever, but instead would be restored to right relationship with God and therefore experience life to the full. And that, friends, in three minutes is the gospel. That's the good news. It's the one true story of the world, and it's the biggest story in the world and the only one that has capacity to make sense of all of our smaller stories. And so today we're going to explore Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, and we're going to see how God's bigger story does three things. And this gets very practical for your life, is that God's big story, number one, makes sense of our past. Second, God's bigger story steadies us in our present. And thirdly, it orients us for our future. And remember, we looked at, even in a, a story like The Notebook or a movie or whatever, like there's, there's themes of that running in every good story, right? Promises of I'm, this story is going to make sense of my past. The sense is going to steady me in my present. The sense of this story is going to give me a hope for the future. But we're going to see that only God's true story can truly fulfill those promises, and that all other smaller stories leave us broken and empty. So let's turn together. If you have your scriptures, you can um, turn to the book of Romans, and we'll be in chapter 5. And I'm going to jump around a bit because the way I'm teaching this isn't sequential, just going 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 through the verse. I'm going to move us thematically through the passage. Okay, first of all, I want you to, as I'm teaching, think about, you know, we're going to be talking about the one true story of the world, but we're all tempted to believe in other big stories. And I mentioned a few in the introduction there, you know, that there, there's a story about career that says, you know, if I, can, if I can just get to the right place of power and influence and where I'm using my giftedness or making the right amount of money, that then like all the struggles of my past will make sense, all the sacrifices will make sense, and then I'll truly be settled. And I kind of have this vision of the good life, of what that life would be like. And then I'll have this hope for a future of, you know, I could retire at a certain moment, or I could be secure, or whatever that hope is. That's just one example. That's a bigger story. It's bigger than the story of your life. And many of us are using a story like that to guide us through our life. And for you, maybe that's not vocation. For you, maybe that's a story of your family or a longing for family or a longing for relationship. For you, maybe that's a story of your ethnic background and the stories of that that are doing the same thing and promising the same things. Or maybe for you, it's that story of our country, our national story, that like when you lie in bed at night and you're really honest with yourself and you go, what really big story is giving me hope for the future? Whatever that is, I want you to have that in mind as we're teaching this morning. Um, and, and, and maybe it's a hybrid of those stories, but it's, it's going to be a challenge to those smaller stories that you might be believing in. All right, so let's jump in. How does God's big, bigger story operate in our lives? First of all, God's one true story makes sense of our past. Let's look at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. So we remember, first of all, that uh, we didn't do anything to get right relationship with God. 
We have been made right in God's sight. It's something that God has done for us when we placed our trust in him. Secondly, that we have peace with God. And I want to talk about this for a second because there's a big difference between peace with God and the peace of God. And the peace of God is just kind of like a nice blessing that we give to people. Like, I'm sending you good vibes. I'm sending you prayers. Like, may the peace of God be with you. And that's a good thing. But that's not what this passage is talking about. That you just somehow have this like spiritual, mysterious peace. What this is talking about is relational reconciliation with God. Peace with God. Because here was the deal in your past. And I don't know your particular story. You don't completely know mine, but we have some things in common. And our thing that we have in common is that whatever the events of our past have been before we met Jesus, right, is that we were broken people, that we were sinful people, that, remember last week, we went through the the Ten Commandments, the basic laws of morality, and we said, we've all broken these commandments. If we haven't done them physically, we've done them in our heart, in our head, and we're all rebels, and then we've broken our relationship with God through our rebellious nature. And so that's something that we have in common in our past. And something else that we have in common is, is the word called shame. Is that because of the things that we have done, because of the things that have happened to us, because some of the things that have happened to us is not because of our sin and brokenness, it's because of the sin and brokenness of the world around us. And some of those things that have happened to us are because of who we are and the ways that we've fallen short. But we all live with a ton of shame. And I don't know if you're familiar with that word or not, but here's what shame means. Shame means not just that I did something bad or wrong, but that I am fundamentally something bad or wrong. And that I deeply believe that I'm fundamentally flawed, that I don't have what it takes, that I'm not worthy of affection or love or a relationship of any kind. And so in our deep in our stories, we live with shame. And remember, that was the first thing that broke into the story when people first rebelled against God, wasn't it? Is that they rebel against God and we keep saying what this basic story is that they run and they hide and it says that they were what? Ashamed. And we've been hiding and running ever since. And so in our past, we live with shame, we live with hiding, we live with fear. But the truth is that when we meet Jesus and we trust that he is who he said he is, that he did what he said he would do for us, that we have peace with God. And that means that our relationship with God has been restored and that we're no longer enemies with God and that we're no longer subject to living out of our shame and our fear and our hiding. But because of what Jesus has done for us, we are set free and so we see that in this way, the one true story of the, of the world is the only thing that has the power to undo our shame narrative stories. Verses six through eight, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might be perhaps willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die while we were still sinners. And I just want to camp on verse six, when we were utterly helpless. And so if you look at your past and you look at your mistakes and you look at the life that you've lived, that word ought to deeply resonate. You were helpless. You were helpless. 
and you see the stories of the world, all of them that we mentioned, where that's a story of career or family or whatever that bigger story is, that all those stories are saying, it's up to you. It's up to you to work your way out, to be good enough to get out of it or whatever. But only the one true story of the world says, no, you're helpless. You have no way out. You have no way out of hiding. You have no way out of becoming something different. But at that moment, when you were utterly helpless, Christ came just at the right time. And what did he do? And this paints a beautiful picture of what he did in this passage, is that he died in your place. And I don't know if you've ever really thought about what that means. Like, imagine that, you know, you had a friend who there was some circumstance happening and they actually sacrificed their life for you. They gave their life. They jumped in front of the bus for you and they gave their life for you. How would you feel? How would you look at that person? What would that sacrifice mean for you? But now imagine that it's God himself who's died in your place. What does that mean for you? Well, what it means is verse eight, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were yet still sinners. So we see that God's one true story ought to make sense of our past. You are not just the sum total of all your mistakes and all your failures and all the things that have happened to you and the ways that you've struggled and the ways that you failed. That is not your identity. If you're in Jesus, then he's entered into your story and just at the right time when you were helpless and couldn't help yourself, he made a way for you to be reconnected with God and he gave you an identity and a worth that you couldn't have any other way. And so therefore you are made right in God's sight by faith in him and therefore you have peace with him that you are no longer at war with God but you're reconnected and reunited with him and this is the reality if you're a follower of Jesus. And so your past doesn't have to define you any longer. Number two, God's one true story of the world steadies us in our present. Verse one, we have peace with God because of what Christ our Lord has done for us. Again, that peace with God, what does that mean for the way that you move through the world? Verse two, because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. And I just want you to imagine, because I don't know how you think about your position in your relationship with God, but if you're like me, I tend to think of myself really far from God a lot of the time. Like God is somewhere out there and he loves me and he saved me, but I'm kind of like calling out to him from the wilderness and he's really far away. And maybe you felt that way before too. But verse two tells us something beautiful that in God's bigger story, Christ has brought us and I think we're supposed to imagine what this looks like. Imagine that Jesus, remember, Jesus is embodied God. He still has a body. We're told that he still has the marks of the crucifixion on his body and that one day we will meet him face to face. He's not an ethereal spiritual being. He's God with flesh on. And this Jesus with skin on has brought us. Imagine him calling us and bringing us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. And I think that word place is incredibly significant, is that you're a human, you're made to dwell in places. You can imagine that. You're gonna go home this afternoon to a place. But you see, because of what Christ has done, he's brought us to a place relationally 
of undeserved privilege. It's a place of privilege. And I think we're supposed to imagine being in the very throne room of God. And that's the invitation of God's one true story, is that you're not on the outer edges of relationship with God, but that he's brought you into the holy of holy places and in place of incredible privilege, which you have not earned or deserved, but where you now stand. And I just want you to think for a minute as you think about your present life, as you think about the things that you're facing in your story right now. And I know for many of you, there's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of hardship that you're facing in this moment right now. And I just wonder how it would change your perspective on yourself and the things that you're facing if you really understood that relationally you stand in a place of great privilege, that the king of the universe, when you go outside tonight and you can see all the stars in the heaven, that God made each one of them, that he made each person in this room, and that that very God has brought you into his presence. Of, it's a place of privilege and he's invited you not, not, not to be there as, as, as an outsider, but that word stand, that he's invited you to stand in his presence. And, and I don't know if you've ever thought about what it would be like to be before the almighty God in all of his purity and holiness and ma majesty. But even if we were before a powerful person on earth, the temptation would be not to stand. We would you want to bow, you want to sit, you want to show reverence. But God says, because of what Jesus has done, you're invited to stand in his presence. Why? Later in the passage tells us, the very last verse, verse 11, so we can now rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Did you know that? That you were a friend of God Almighty? What an incredible reality that ought to shape every moment in your present life. And then there's this incredible paradigm that Paul invites us into. Starting in verse 3, he says, we can rejoice too. We can rejoice. I love that word. Rejoice, it means re-choose joy. That I can choose to have joy when we run into problems and trials. We're each facing lots of difficulties. Some of you are suffering immensely and you have pain, you have loss of a loved one. Maybe you're going through a difficult health situation. Maybe you're struggling as a parent. Maybe your marriage is incredibly broken and difficult right now. Maybe you're longing for something that isn't being fulfilled. Maybe you're struggling because you don't have a job. Maybe your job is miserable and painful. Maybe you're going through a financial difficulty and the weight feels too much to bear. Maybe there's a, a family matter that's beyond your, your family, but it's in your extended family, and it's causing a lot of pain and difficulty for you in this moment. I don't know what you're facing right now, but here's what I want you to hear. You're not alone. This is what it means to be human is to struggle and to have problems and to have trials. Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. But you see, God's one true story of the world invites us to walk into our trouble in a different way. For he says, when we run into problems and trials, we know that they can help us develop endurance. And this word endurance 
is really important. Another way to put it is perseverance. Another way to put perseverance is single-mindedness or focus. And I think it's really meant to conjure up images of, of an athlete training and running. And that like when we run into our problems and trials, and every time we run into that, with the hope of Jesus that we have this ability as Christ followers, an ability that no one in the world has the ability to do except for us is that we can see through our problems and our trials to the other side. Because we know that our problems and our difficulties do not define us. We, we know that our success in this world does not define us. But instead, we've got our eyes focused on the prize ahead because it's that thing that we just talked about because we already know our position before Almighty God, that we're already standing relationally in front of him in all his holiness, in all his glory, and that we believe who he says he is, that we believe that he did what he said he did, and we believe that he will do what he says he will do, and that because of that, when we run into the most difficult things in our life, we can rejoice because we can have a single-minded focus on moving ahead because we're not focused on our problems. We're focused on the Lord and what he's doing and where he is. And we're told that when we keep doing this and keep living a life of running into our problems and trials with a single-minded focus toward Jesus, that that endurance develops strength of character, which is also another way to say that we develop this testedness in other words, this quality of having been tested, that, that like an athlete who trains and over and over and over again, puts themselves through difficulty. Why? So that then when they get to the race, the, the pain and the difficulty isn't new because they've been tested. And, and mentally they're strong. And, and physically they know what's coming. And they can still run through that with the assurance that they'll get through it. But see, with Jesus, we run through, not with our own power, our own strength, but with the strength of resurrected Jesus. And that as we do that over and over and again, we become tested people. And we have a quality of confidence of having been through these experiences before. And see, all of this, friends, leads us to hope. Character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And that leads us to the third thing is that God's one true story not only makes sense of our past and, and steadies us in our present, but it orients us for our future, verse 4. And endurance develops strength of character. Character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. Verse 2, we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing in God's glory. You see, friends, there's an end of the story coming that God's one true story of the world, yes, is about the past. It's about the past of what he's already accomplished on the cross for you. It's about your past, that your past doesn't define you when you believe in Jesus, that he makes all things new and that he makes sense of all your past mistakes and he forgives you and he doesn't condemn you and that he gifts you anyway and he calls you to a life with him that it's the past, that it's the present, but it's also the future. And there's this future hope. And I want to point us uh, to the most hopeful book in all the Bible, which some people 
Don't think of, that, of this that way. But it's the book of Revelation. Did you know that? The book of Revelation is meant to be the most encouraging book in all of the scriptures. Why? Because it's the end of the story. It's where it all goes in the end. And I just want to read this to you as a way of understanding how the one true story orients you toward your future. And I want you all to have in mind whatever you're facing right now. I want you to put in your mind the thing that you're suffering through right now, the hardest thing, the heaviest thing that you're carrying in your life that feels too much, that it feels like it might crush you. You don't know your way out of it. But if you know Jesus, I want you to hear this and understand this is your one true story of the world, yes, but of you, yes. Revelation 21, verse one, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. And the sea was also gone, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain for all these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down for all what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. And all who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. And so you see, Paul is pointing us to a hope. And he says in verse 4, this is a hope will not lead you to disappointment. Friends, the good news isn't just about being saved and going to heaven when you die. The good news is about being transformed by the power of the living God. It's about understanding that you are not a product of your past, that you are forgiven because of the death of Jesus, that you are given life because of the life of Jesus. And that means in your present you should have a steadiness that the world doesn't know anything about and that when you look into the worst trials that this world has to offer you, that you stare through them to the end of the story and that you remain and you endure and in doing you build this character within you because you remember that one day your God is coming for you and that one day he will wipe away every tear from your eye. And one day he will make all the sad things become untrue. And one day he will dwell with his people in a new heaven and a new earth. And so you see God's one true story orients us for the one true future of the world. And the truth is there's only one big story that has the capacity to make sense of your life. And all of us are tempted every day to believe smaller stories that the world is offering you. And I don't know what those stories are, but I want to challenge you today to not give in to them. Don't give in to the story that it's your job and your career and your success that will make sense of your life and give you satisfaction and hope for your future. 
Don't give in to the temptation that it's your family and your children that will make sense of your life and give you hope for a future. Don't give in to the lie that it's our country and our power and our prominence in the world and our success and our material wealth and our security and our comfort that will make sense of your life and give you hope for a future. There's only one story that has the capacity to make sense of your life, and it's God's one true story of King Jesus that makes sense of your past, that steadies you in your present and orients you to a glorious future. But here's the question for you today, friends. Will you choose this day to live out of this story? That's the question. Let's go to prayer as we end this message. Lord, we come before you as a broken people. And Lord, we confess that we forget your true story just in the movements of everyday life. That, that Lord, we're tempted to believe that it's still up to us. That, that, that we still are the world maker. That we construct our reality. And that everything's up to us. But we confess to you today, Lord, that we're forgetful. But we thank you, Lord, for this reminder of your scriptures that, that, Lord, you are king, that you're making all things new, that you invite us into this glorious story, that we have been made right in your sight by faith and that we have peace with you because of what Jesus has done. And we thank you, Lord, that we can rejoice today when we run into the hardest problems that we'll face this week because we know that's not the end of the story, God. And so we ask for your help, Lord, that we would embrace your story, that you would orient us to a future, that, Lord, we would hold that story in front of us and run through the worst this world has to offer. And we pray these things in Christ's name, amen.